We read from Holy Scripture this morning in the book of Romans, chapter 3. Romans, chapter 3. The Apostle has been establishing that all men are condemned before God by either the testimony of their conscience through God's revelation of Himself in the world or through the law, and He's continuing that really uh, instruction with regard now to the response, well, what about those who have God's Word, and especially the law in God's Word? And he's leading, of course, to the great conclusion, the great center and heart of the gospel found in the book that we are justified by faith alone without works. What advantage then hath the Jew or what profit is there of circumcision? Much, every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No. In no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the flesh, deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. 
But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. We read that far in God's holy word and consider Lord's Day 2. Whence knowest thou thy misery? Out of the law of God. What doth the law of God require of us? Christ teaches us that briefly. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40 Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Canst thou keep all these things perfectly in no wise? For I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Scriptures, and therefore the Reformed creeds, including the Heidelberg Catechism that we expound, presents the believing Christian as a conundrum, as a paradox, as two things that are antithetical and opposed to each other, and neither one nor the other by itself. The Scriptures and our creeds present us that way with regard to who we are, who we are in our nature, that we are an old man in Adam and a new man in Christ, an old man that is crucified and buried with Christ that the body of sin might be destroyed, and a new man out of which we live without serving sin. Distinction that's made 
between the spirit and the flesh, or the inward and the outward man, that which is natural, that which is physical, that which is by natural and physical generation by parents, and what we are by spiritual generation from our Father and by the Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are presented that way with regard to how we act and how we think and how we behave. We are presented in Scripture as sinners and saints. Apostle Paul says, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. There is evil present in me so that the evil that I would not that I do and the evil that I do that I would not. Yet, we are called saints. Saints who serve not sin. Saints who do not sin. Saints who delight in the law of God after the inward man. So that the Scriptures could say that whosoever is born of God cannot sin. And yet, and the same Scripture says that he that says we sin not is a liar. Now these, of course, are not true actual contradictions, but they are easily explained in the light of God's Word, but very important and closely related. They have to do with the fact that you and I are one individual person. That's what we are. We have one individual person. We are that person. And that person operates and acts according to two completely different life principles. One that we were born with and one that we were reborn with. One that is physical, one that is spiritual. And so, both are equally true with regard to our one person. With regard to one earthly, physical nature, according to flesh, according to my natural generation, I am one thing. And with regard to my regeneration and my rebirth, according to the Spirit of Christ that is with me, I am something else. And this explains how Scripture speaks of us. And these aren't the only, the only apparent contradictions with regard to who we are. We are described in Scripture as dead. And we are described as living. We are described as dying every single day that we will die in the end, yet Christ says we shall never die. We shall always live. We are presented as warriors who have a battle to fight, and yet we are victorious. We are warriors who battle, and yet we are peacemakers. We are wise, and yet fools. We are unloved, and yet beloved. And in the Heidelberg Catechism, we are presented on the one hand as someone who's miserable. We have a misery. What is your misery? Misery that we learn. And yet at the same time, the Catechism says we are happy that this knowledge is our happiness. 
Previously, we asked the question, how many things are necessary for thee to know that enjoying this comfort thou mayest live and die happily? The Christian, you see, isn't only miserable, nor is he only happy. He's miserable but happy. And consider that with me this morning. Miserable but happy. We notice those two points, our misery and then our happiness. The emphasis, beloved people of God, is something of utmost importance, something that's necessary to know, that explains the approach of the catechism, that explains how we preach the catechism. Take note that the catechism does not come to us simply speaking the law of God. When we go through the catechism and this first part of the catechism, it is not the law of God that's speaking to us, but it is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us in the light of the law and teaching us the proper place of the law. That makes all the difference in the world. Our purpose here in this first part of the Heidelberg Catechism isn't merely and only, not even mainly, to explain the law of God. You could do that. The law of God teaches us our misery, and the misery is something we should know. So the question could be asked, why does not the Heidelberg Catechism explain the law here? Well, it does. It sets forth the positive obligation because it understands that for a Christian, which the Catechism assumes we are, that we have faith, that should be enough to make the point that we have a misery, a real misery, But that's not where it is left. It might seem that way sometime when we read through the first part of the Catechism. But there is Gospel there. The Gospel is there in this Lord's Day with a very, very important word. That word is that we are happy. That at least when we know what the Catechism is teaching, when we are instructed by the law, when we are given the instruction that is brought to us here in this Lord's Day, it is the knowledge that makes us happy. And that we should keep in mind even when considering our misery. We're going to try to stick to the point that we have a misery and that we need to know that misery. But let's remember, even as we consider that, that this is the gospel to us. This knowledge is our happiness. It is what we need to know. The first point that we want to consider in this regard 
is that when the Catechism asks the question, Whence knowest thou thy misery? and answers, Out of the law of God, it's teaching us very importantly what our misery is not. And this is an important point because it differentiates between a true Christian and a false Christian. It even exposes me when I'm living hypocritically as a Christian. When I imagine certain things are to be real, are real and true, when in fact they are not with regard to me. Let me explain. You will, if you know yourself, be very aware that in the church, and let's stick to the church now for a moment, those who know the truth of the Word of God, at least intellectually, that which is brought here. And if you survey the Christian church, you will discover that we are prone in our sin and wickedness to one of two positions. One is that we are miserable. What I'm talking about isn't the difference between an optimist and a pessimist, but where it's taught, where it's assumed, where one believes it is natural and right and good as a Christian to be miserable. That this isn't really the default position of the Christian, but this is where he ought to go. This is where he ought to be driven. If one is happy, if one is content, if one has peace, then they must be made miserable. The best Christians, the strongest Christians, are those that are always looking inwardly, looking at their sin. All they can think about is their sin. If there's an ounce of happiness that pops up into their head, it's quickly squashed with the thought, I'm a sinner. And so they have a tendency to see themselves, to view the church, to view the gospel, to view everything about the Christian as the goal being miserable. The more miserable you are, the better off you are. That's wrong. That's wrong. There are other Christians that are on the other side of the equation, probably far more. That the Christian ought to be exclusively happy and filled with joy, bubbly, outgoing, ought to have an outlook on everything where there's nothing negative, not a negative thought. The word sin never appears in one's prayer. When the word sin comes up, when the word misery comes up, when the word depravity comes up, they push that aside. There's no place in my heart and soul for that anymore. I've been reborn. I've been regenerated. I'm a, I'm a new person. No place for all that old, old Testament talk. Neither of those positions are Christian. Neither of those positions are of faith. They are made up they are figments of our imagination. They are not true representations of who and what we are and ought to be. The Christian should be 
not exclusively one or the other, or even mainly one or the other. With regard to what our misery is and what it is not, we should also see that the vast majority of the things that make us miserable and that we consider to be our misery are in fact not our misery at all. We must understand that this is what's being taught here when the Catechism says, how do you know your misery? And the answer is not through experience. The answer is not, well, I learn my misery simply by living life like everyone else. And what I learn to see is that over time, compared to when I was a child, I see there's much evil, there's much wickedness out there. There's war and rumor of war. There's famine and pestilence. There's evil, wicked people. And then there's all these terrible things that happen to me. Or could happen to me. I've learned that my misery is I could get cancer. My misery is I could get hit by a truck and die. My misery is that all my children are not perfect. My misery is that I could have married a nicer person. My misery is that in the church there's all kinds of sinners that do wicked things. My misery is that there's people who do wicked things to me. My misery is that I got to get up every day and go to a job where the boss doesn't appreciate me. And I give my life to that job. And I'll probably never be able to retire on what I'm making. And if I do retire, it quickly is all gone. My misery is that we have evil, wicked politicians running things. My misery is inflation. No. Those things are not your misery. You don't need to learn them from the law of God. Proof of that is that the world knows all those things. There's not a single individual outside of this church building that doesn't know those things. And any individual that goes through life with a big smile on their face like everything's happy is lying. They're a hypocrite. They know better. They may make a lot of money by presenting themselves as happy. That's what's going on. That's what's being presented in all the YouTube channels and all the Instagram accounts. What do we have? Why, look at my life. It's so wonderful and great. Look at all the beautiful places I visit. Every now and then there might be somebody that presents a more miserable approach. But even those people that make lots of money off people watching them and the wonderful, glorious, sanitized life that they have know they're miserable. And they didn't learn it from the law of God. Well, there's a certain knowledge of that in the law of God. There's a certain understanding that they are convicted before God. But that's not what the catechism is talking about here. And we must understand that. When the catechism asks the question, how do you know your misery, it's teaching you something that only a child of God can believe by faith. Uh, certainly, it's something that the law teaches 
but it's the law that teaches you in such a way that you truly acknowledge and see it for what it is, which is your misery, your true misery, isn't any of those things that I mentioned, even though there's sin involved, even though there's wickedness involved, even though even the ungodly might admit, yeah, the reason why there's wars that sweep over an entire continent to destroy and kill millions of people is people are sinners. There's wicked and evil in the world. Look at that man and look at this people and look at that. What we're talking about here is something that touches every single one of us. Something that condemns every single one of us. Something that we must acknowledge without excuse, without a but, without pointing the finger elsewhere out of the law of God, which is your fundamental problem is in your own heart. It's not other people's heart, it's your own heart. The fundamental problem is found right inside of you. It's something that the law of God comes and when it speaks, it speaks right to you. Something that invokes a response. Something that demands a response. It is the law of God, the Word of God, God speaking directly to you individually as a person. The law, you see, is spiritual. That's what we read. That's what we find in the Word of God. The problem is the law is spiritual. I'm carnal. And what I learn, what I need to learn, what I need to know is spiritual. So we must understand that. And let's, again, not be so quick but to not acknowledge this because this is our sinfulness. When, when we read that we are prone to hate God and our neighbor, we have to understand it begins right here. Our proneness to hate God and the neighbor begins when God speaks in our soul and in our conscience, even with regard to to what makes us miserable. Let's run a test. Let's run a test. You examine your heart, I will examine mine with regard to this test. And the test is this. How do you feel when those other things I mentioned affect you? Surely something on that list affects you. Oh yes, maybe the United States isn't being overrun by a horde of ungodly, wicked people with weapons and tanks, yet maybe the economy isn't so bad that we don't really even know where our next meal is coming from. Few of us have a life-threatening disease, but there are surely things that happen in your life that create misery, that make you sad, that make you weep, that trouble your soul, that you want to tell others about, that you want to gather with others and, and speak about these things. Certainly there's nothing wrong with that, but I want you to ask, how do you respond to that? How do you respond when you lose your job? How do you respond when the doctor says you have this disease? How do you respond? What do you think? about your job every day. 
When you groan, what are you groaning about? When you cry, what are you crying about? When, when you're anxious and despair, when, when you're troubled, what are you really troubled and anxious and despair about? Is it your sin? Now in comparison, let's, let's examine how we respond with regard to our sin. We can commit some very, very wicked and evil sins. And if you don't think so, then you don't know your misery. But let's suppose we've done something very wicked and very foolish. How do you respond to that? There may be often anguish and trouble and, and some tears, but it, is it the same reaction as the other things? And And let's... I picked the one that should be easiest. And even there we should say, no, I, I must confess that I don't, I, don't, I don't really feel the same kind of misery about those things. In, in fact, I, I become very comfortable with them. Well, that's just who I am. That's my besetting sin. That's my nature. Why, everybody is like that. Surely no one is free from the, You see? We're not miserable. Not really. But let's go deeper. The, the sin that the law exposes, exposes every sin, every kind of sin. What the law of God teaches us, which is why it was put positively, is that it demands perfection in everything. Not just negatively, but positively with regard to our thoughts and behavior, not just with our outward behavior, but our thoughts. It's just that we may not, we may not do certain things, that we're forbidden to commit adultery and kill and steal, but positively we're required to live a certain way. Love. Simply look at the law. Love. God says, you must love your neighbor. As yourself. Number one, we don't love ourselves rightly. When we do love ourselves, it's idolatry. It's self-service and self-seeking. It's all the wrong kind of love. And then when we love the neighbor as ourself, we don't do that either. Not only can we not love ourselves as we ought, but we don't love the neighbor as ourselves. We love ourselves more than the neighbor. We will give ourselves all kinds of things in our warped sense of self-love. But we won't give the neighbor the time of day. The law comes along and exposes all that. Does it really make you miserable when you sin against a neighbor? Is that, is that, is that what you feel? Is that really what's going on when, when you say, yeah, but that neighbor deserves it? It's not a very nice neighbor. That neighbor has said some unkind things to me. I don't know if that neighbor really ought to be in the church. I don't know if that neighbor really is a Christian. I, I, don't, I don't know. Is that really what you're feeling? Real misery? When you're in a marriage and you're arguing and you're, you're fighting? That my misery is my sin? Or is it my misery is the other person's sin? Now the catechism 
says that you and I need to know our misery and we need to know it out of the law of God. And that means we have to look at ourselves by faith. It's a matter of faith. The knowledge that's being spoken of here is the knowledge of faith. It's whereby I must really plumb the depths of what my real misery is. And we can start with the fact that I don't even see really what my real misery is. That my basic problem is I spend my life making myself miserable or becoming miserable or being miserable about everything but my own misery. So that explains then why I spend my time pursuing how to fix that misery and deal with that misery and then to the exclusion of dealing with my real misery. You see, the knowledge of our misery, the real knowledge of our misery, is that which makes us happy and gives us comfort. I hope I'm making this clear. The Catechism does not simply say, you need to know your misery. Your misery is known out of the law of God. Can you keep the law perfectly? No, I'm prone to hate God and my neighbor. Let's move on. The entire Christian life really begins here. The failure to truly do this, beloved, explains so much. It explains why there's very little repentance often in the church. How we can sit in the church day after day, week after week, year after year, decades after decade, living in the most gross, wicked, abominable sins without an ounce of repentance. It explains why when the law of God comes to us and says, you sinner, let alone when our neighbor, whether it's our spouse or a good friend comes to us and says, you sinner, we get mad and angry. It explains why much counseling and pastoral work in the church doesn't really deal with sin as such. It deals with a lot of people who have made themselves miserable over everything but sin. And while much other pastoral work in the church has to do with sins that should have been repented of long time ago in the light of sitting frequently and often at the Lord's table and underneath His gospel. If you ask what's fundamentally wrong the answer is, these are people who do not know their misery. It's when we do not know our misery, beloved, and I'm including myself, then we are no different than the unsaved and the unbelieving. What is it, fundamentally, that separates a child of God, a believing child of God, and a believing child of God now that is happy, truly happy? And it begins here. This is the keystone, the centerpiece of repentance. A real turning from sin unto God. A real turning from unbelief to faith. And it exposes much happiness and the pursuit of such happiness as pure idolatry. What is it that explains why you can hardly fill a church 
to attend something other than a worship service? Why is it that the evening service is always less attended than the morning? Why is it that children don't know their catechism? Why is it that us parents are too busy all the time for real, true fellowship? Why is it that we have so many troubles with addictions? Why is it that we have so many people that have so little time for the Lord? And the answer is because we believe our real misery is everything but sin. And we're going to fix that misery. We're going to cure it. We're going to make ourselves happy by fixing them. And you understand the Heidelberg Catechism here comes to you this morning and says, oh no, you have no idea what your real problem is. Or you think that you're living by faith. You think and you imagine you're a believer, but you have no idea of even the ABCs. The first part of the three main parts that you need to know to live and die happily. Because there's the next thing, you see. The child of God is a happy Christian. Is a person that has comfort. Is a person that even from this derives joy and delight. And here too, we have to remember that that's the Word of God. It says by teaching us this, that a child of God who knows these three things, not that they may at some point eventually arrive at happiness, but the child of God who knows these three things does indeed live as well as die happily. Not just lives miserably until they die and then they're happy. Again, let's look at our lives. Are you really happy? Really, you know what the gauge of real biblical happiness is? It doesn't look like an individual sitting in a nice big fancy boat with a big old glass of wine and a smile on their face, playing cards with their friends. That's not real happiness. That can be gone in a flash. This happiness isn't the happiness that often is the reason for the smiles on our face and the joy in our souls. And that's evident because it often doesn't express itself in psalms and singing to God and singing His praises, but joining the world in their songs and their praises and their activities and their parties. Are you really happy? Really If you're not, it's because you don't know your misery and you haven't learned it out of the law of God. The Heidelberg Catechism teaching us here the Gospel that through real, true knowledge of the Word of God by faith that a child of God lives a happy, joyful, comfortable life. Why is that? Because that child of God will go to the only place where he knows he can find happiness. And it's not spending more. It's not the shopping mall. 
It's not Amazon.com. It's not your retirement account. It's not your good health. It's not a happy marriage. The law of God comes and it says, you can't find happiness yourself. True happiness is to be right with God. True happiness is to have the righteousness of God. And the law says that's what it is. That's what it looks like. And you can try to live according to that law of God. Oh, you can put your best effort into it. You can make your best attempt and try. And you can maybe even think you do 99% of that law. If you truly know the law of God and you truly know yourself, you're going to discover that 1% would be a reach. But even the proverbial .001% isn't perfection. And there's no happiness in that. The only thing that makes one happy is to be righteous as God is righteous. To be perfect as God is perfect. The only thing that can make one happy is to have all those sins, first of all, pardoned, forgiven, so that whatever happens in life, good or evil, it's for my profit and good. Real happiness is also that I know God is changing me. God has indeed taught me who I am. He's teaching me more and more who I am. You see, real happiness is found with your face buried in the dirt before God, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all I am. I'm a sinner, and God is righteous. And I've learned even when I think I'm quite the person, that that's really when I'm the worst person. God, be merciful to me. God, be gracious unto me. And then one hears God say, your sins are forgiven. I give to you my righteousness. I give to you perfection. I see you, sinner, who truly sees that your real misery is sin, not just one of many miseries, but really your only misery. They're washed away, paid in full. But beloved, you will never hear that word. You will never know the joy of that word if you don't really, truly know your sin by faith, through the law of God, and hear God speak to you about that in all of its glory and all of its wonder. You see how basic this is? As we go through the catechism, we're going to see how basic it is. The catechism is going to cover more bases that we couldn't cover here this morning. So the question again to you is, what is your misery? What is your real misery? The answer is it's sin. And the death that is the result of it. Where did you learn that? From the law of God. Can you keep that law? Answer, no.
No. I'm prone to hate God and my neighbor. And you see, that's happiness. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord, we thank thee for thy word, thy word of truth, thy word which convicts us in our heart and soul that we are indeed miserable creatures because of our sin. But there is in that knowledge happiness and joy. O Lord, forgive us. Forgive us in thy mercy and for thy namesake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.